1: the nation magazine this is start making sense political talk without the boring parts i'm john wiener later in this show i'll speak with anna devere smith about the school to prison pipeline that's the subject of her one woman show called notes from the field which dramatizes the real life accounts of students parents and teachers caught in a system where young people of color who live in poverty get pushed out of the classroom and into the criminal justice system Her show is streaming online now at HBO. Also, there are 219,000 women in prison in the United States. Rachel Kushner's new novel, The Mars Room, is a story about one of them. We'll talk about the way she makes facts and imagination in writing the novel. First up, one of the defining features of Trump's politics, it's no secret, has been the way he's appealed to hatred and fear of refugees and immigrants, now, refugee writers and refugee lives are featured in a new book. It's called The Displaced, and it's edited by Viet Nguyen. He's the author of three books, including the unforgettable novel The Sympathizer. It won the Pulitzer Prize. He's the recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, and he was selected as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences along with ta Coates, Sonia Sotomayor, and Barack Obama. He also teaches at USC, where he's Arnold Chair of English Complet, and American Studies and Ethnicity. Last time we talked to him here, it was about the sympathizer. Viet Nguyen, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, John. And congratulations on the academy appointment. Isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> strange to be strange to have my
2: name mentioned in the company of those other names that you. That you
1: well, al- alphabetical order puts you right next to Obama. It's it's a great thing. Well, let's see if the seating chart works out the same way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you insist on being called a refugee and not an immigrant. Why is that? The immigrant
2: idea in America is very strong. Right, we we call ourselves a nation of immigrants, and it's a part of our mythology that immigrants come here and they achieve the american dream and i think even at this moment in history where the xenophobic feelings in american society that have always been there are reaching another peak, even those people who don't like immigrants nevertheless believe in that immigrant idea. Like of course immigrants would want to come to the United States because we're awesome. But refugees (laughs) are different. Refugees are unwanted where they come from, they're unwanted where they go to, they're a different legal category, they're a different category of feeling in terms of how the refugees experience themselves. And they're a much more despised category even for than immigrants for so many people in the United States. So it's very easy for someone like me to pass himself off as an immigrant, to pretend to be an immigrant, but I feel like I'm doing a disservice. I feel like I'm not speaking the truth, and I feel that it's necessary for people like me who have benefited from being a refugee uh, to acknowledge our existence as
1: such and to advocate for the refugees today. Well, I looked up some of the statistics on refugees today uh, in about Trump's current policy. Last September, Trump slashed the camp on refugees admitted to the United States. <clears throat> Obama Under Obama, it had, the target was 110,000. Uh, Trump officially slashed that to 45,000, but this year it looks like he only 22,000 will be resettled, which is about a fifth of what Obama's target was, if we look at Syrian refugees admitted to the United States. uh, 2016, Obama around 15,000. 2017, around 3,000. And thus far in 2018, 11. A total of 11. You became a refugee in 1975. You were four years old, what's the story there? How did that happen?
2: Well, my parents were fleeing from the Vietnam War and they were obviously from the Southern side, so they were among the losing side. And so along with 130,000 other Vietnamese people who were afraid of communism, they decided to flee the country and they were among the lucky ones who managed to get out because I think the CIA was estimating there was about a million South Vietnamese people who had some kind of affiliation with the United States who really wanted to leave and couldn't. So this 130,000 group of uh, population ended up in the United States in one of four refugee camps, and my parents and I ended up in Fort Indian Town Gap in Pennsylvania. And that's where my memories begin, uh, in a refugee camp, uh, being taken away from my parents, because in order to leave one of these camps, you had to have a sponsor. Well, one sponsor took my parents, one sponsor took my 10-year-old brother, and one sponsor took four-year-old me, which when you're four years old, it's very traumatic to be separated from your parents. Uh, And I speak now as a father of a four-year-old son, and and, and looking at him, I see myself, and and I can just imagine how painful that that experience would have been for me and for my parents. So that's where memory begins with this narrative, and that's why I feel, you know, for me, I've never forgotten being a refugee because of that trauma.
1: You write in the introduction to the displaced I do not remember many things, and for all those things I do not remember, I am grateful, close quote. Why is that?
2: If you do any reading into refugee experiences, what you discover is that people who are refugees almost uniformly have <laughs> suffered terribly in trying to escape the country they were fleeing from and in trying to get to the countries that they want to go to. And in the case of just this South Vietnamese population that we 're talking about, uh, the refugee experience was horrendous. you know many, many, many lives were lost. Many terrible things happened to the people who were trying to flee and At four years old i didn 't remember any of that kind of stuff my My brother, who is ten you know has, remembers dead paratroopers hanging from the trees yes. on the mountain route that we were uh, escaping our home city from, where we were walking downhill about 180 kilometers trying to make it to a port town to get a boat to Saigon. And that mountain route, from the research that I've done as an adult, was clogged with tens of thousands of civilians and all their vehicles and property, and tens of thousands of South Vietnamese soldiers fleeing as well. It was a nightmare. So no one who's been through that experience has ever forgotten it, and those are traumatic, terrible things to have witnessed So that's why I'm thankful that I don't actually remember these things myself, and I have the luxury of reconstructing them from other people's memories.
1: You say that refugees like you and your family in America today are both invisible and hyper-visible. Please explain what you mean.
2: Well, by that I mean we share a situation that is completely common for just about any minority or marginalized population in this country or in any other country. We're invisible in the sense that people, the rest of America, doesn't know about our existence and doesn't care to know about our existence. So when my book started to come out, for example, The Sympathizer, I've had many people come up to me and say, well, we were there uh, in 1975 or the 1970s when the Vietnamese refugees started coming to town, and we knew nothing about them, and we never cared to ask. We were invisible, but we become hypervisible when we become a problem, when we become gangsters or when we become visible as welfare cheats and things like that. But there's no in-between. We're not allowed the luxury of just being normal, just being visible like everybody else in, in majority American society. And so we fluctuate then between never being seen and only being seen as a
1: problem. You have a wonderful sentence about being uh, a, a writer about refugees. I keep my tattered memories of being a refugee close to me. Why is that?
2: I think it's easy for people who have undergone some kind of terrible loss or some kind of terrible experience to forget about these things, although it's not easy. It's, it's desirable for them to do so. So I've actually met quite a few refugees who don't acknowledge that they are refugees. They just call themselves immigrants because again it's easier to call yourself an immigrant. if you call yourself an immigrant here, uh, you fit people, people will, will want to hear your heartwarming story about getting to this country and succeeding. Yes. If you say you're a refugee, that's the quickest way to kill a cocktail party conversation because people <laughs> can't relate to that so that's why I keep those tattered memories close to me because number one, it's important to, to do this work of reminding uh, other refugees and other Americans that we exist. but number two, it makes me empathetic it makes me feel for these new refugees and what they're going through. And that's an important thing for me as a writer and a human being to do because I know that there are some former refugees out there who are saying, you know what, we're the good refugees. We deserve to be here. All these new people from the Middle East or Syria, for example, they're the bad refugees. They're different. We've got to close the door on these people. And I think that's fundamentally wrong
1: kind of the purpose of a book like The Displaced is to help us imagine the lives of refugees. But you say in your introduction that this imagining can lead us to deceive ourselves. What do you mean there?
2: Well, I think that this is a part of the problem with literature. You know, literature's strength is built on, on empathy, um, both the empathy of authors and the empathy of readers. We want to get to know other characters, other people from, from different places. And this is a very powerful thing, But it's also deceptive because it's a luxury, I think. We want to know about terrible situation X and and sympathetic person Y, and we've read their story, and and our our hearts are warmed, and and our, our emotions are moved. But what happens if we don't do anything? What happens if we just put down that book and pick up another book? What happens if we don't donate money, if we don't get involved in an aid organization? What happens if we don't call our elected officials? What happens if we don't march in the streets? What happens if we don't take action? And I think that's the danger of of literature, that it can, as much as it awakens our feelings, it can also lull us into a sense of complacency that we've already done something simply by reading about someone's situation.
1: And I should uh, add here that the publisher of The Displaced, Abrams, is donating 10% of the cover price to the International Rescue Committee one of the one or two leading nonprofits in the world that 's been providing humanitarian relief to refugees since World War II. I know you 're a supporter of the i r c and they're an important part of this book.
2: No absolutely. I think that there are important organizations like the i r c that are carrying out this work they've been doing it for a long time you know there there are uh by u n estimates uh twenty two and a half million uh refugees in the world right now. Um, and that is out of a population of 66.5 million uh, displaced people, as the U.N. calls them. Uh, so th- if you add all these people up together, they're a very large country. That would be a country that's larger than France. Yeah. So there's, there's pressing need for these types of organizations and, and the work that they do.
1: One last thing I wanted to ask you about. You had a piece in the New York Times last Sunday, and the title was, Don't Call Me a Genius. You, of course, are the winner of what is usually called, in fact, we just called it in introducing you, a MacArthur Genius Grant. Uh, why don't you want people to use that word to describe you?
2: Well, first of all, let me just say I didn't write that title.
1: Okay.
2: <laughs> it's a, it's a, the whole piece is actually about the, the, the problems with genius, not that I don't want to be called a genius. <laughs> But you know, it's 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 about this idea that when we say genius nowadays in uh, our society, we're typically talking about some individual of remarkable talent or achievement, and we laud this person and we and we elevate this person. And it, in my case, you know, it's related to the label that's often put upon someone like me, a writer from a minority or marginalized community. Uh, I have been called a voice for the voiceless. Yeah. Many writers like me have been called that. And a voice for the voiceless is just this kind of thing that we trot out whenever someone is uh, writing about an experience we don't know anything about. And that, that's meant to be a compliment, you know, that this person is exceptional. And that's why it's dangerous, uh, because... When we call someone a voice for the voiceless, what we're really saying is we don't want to hear all the other voices that are out there. It's just easier dealing with one person. And I think that's the same thing with genius. And my my feeling is that if I've been able to achieve anything as a writer, it's partly, yes, through hard work on my own, but partly also through a whole history of people who have sacrificed before me, other writers who have come before, other voices for the voiceless who have all been forgotten now for the most part, um, my work is made possible by the you know all these social and political struggles by asian americans by african americans by so by so many other people that have created the space for someone like me not to be persecuted or discriminated against simply by the fact of my own existence so for me genius is actually something that needs to be considered in the context of communities that one of the older meanings of genius is actually the spirit of a community and i come out of an asian american community vietnamese american community whose struggles, again, have made it possible for me to do the work that I do. And I don't think of myself as a voice for them who are voiceless people because they're actually all really, really loud. (laughs) I think that my work is aligned both with literature but also with these social and political movements whose goal is, yes, to get more voices out there, but really to transform the conditions of our society so that we don't have voiceless people
1: anymore. And that's a really long-term struggle that we're engaged in. The Long-Term Struggle. The book is The Displaced, Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives. It's edited by Viet Nguyen. Viet, thanks for talking with us today. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much, John. Next up, the school-to-prison pipeline. That's the subject of Anna DeVere Smith's one-woman show. It's called Notes from the Field, and it dramatizes the real-life accounts of students, parents, teachers, and school administrators caught up in a system where young people of color who live in poverty get pushed out of the classroom and into prison. Anna DeVere Smith, of course, is probably best known to TV audiences as Nancy McNally on The West Wing and Gloria Acolytis on Nurse Jackie. She teaches at NYU. She's an official MacArthur genius. She calls this the Pipeline Project. I spoke with her about it in 2016.
3: The Pipeline Project is about how poverty uh, really manifests in black, brown, and Native American communities in such a way that the likelihood that a kid is going to end up in the juvenile justice system and then in prison is, is very, very high. And I think you know that there are a lot of people in America who are concerned at the incarceration rates in our country, and it's one of the few places, my understanding, that that uh, Democrats and Republicans even agree that we have to do something about the number of people who are being locked up. And kids are a part of that. Some people call this the school-to-prison pipeline, and the Justice Department has statistics that prove that poor kids of color are more likely to be suspended or expelled from school for things that you know, sometimes aren't very clear. and something called willful defiance. Um, you know, if you sort of look at the teacher the wrong way, that's an example. And people are doing a lot of work to try to turn that back to figure out, you know, how to keep kids in school. Myself, even as I got into this project under the umbrella of the school, the prison pipeline, I feel it's a little bit dangerous to blame schools and teachers for something that is really rooted in, in, in poverty in the way that people live without opportunity.
1: And just to remind our listeners who may not be familiar with your performances, you take a social and political issue, you interview 100 people or more who come from a broad spectrum of perspectives. Then you take about, what, two dozen of the characters yourself and recreate them, their speech, their gestures. It's it's amazing it's an amazing uh, thing. We saw you a couple of months ago here in L.A. on the Broad Stage in Santa Monica. More recently, you performed in, in Baltimore. I imagine the doing this in Baltimore after Freddie Gray is different from doing it in Santa Monica.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I uh, ended up doing my research in Baltimore by a series of uh, sort of unexpected Um, events, I ended up uh, postponing what was going to be a research period in March of last year, and I had moved it to May only to arrive in Baltimore right after the riot or the unrest or the events, whatever you want to call it. And so certainly when I went there in December to perform um, for Baltimore, I mean, you know, it's a city that is... uh, really, uh, you know, they don't know what they're sitting on because, as you mentioned when we began talking, you know, the trials are just going to be starting. And it's always exciting, I have to say, to be performing in an environment where the issues are very alive and relevant.
1: We have some some clips we're, we're going to listen to, starting with a young woman from Baltimore that you spoke with and then recreated on stage named India Sledge. Say a few words about India Sledge. Who is she and how did you find her?
3: Yeah, so I met India um, in a program that is you know, sort of like a GED program, you know, sort of finishing your high school education. She actually left either middle school or the beginning of high school because she was pregnant and she's now had two children and is Uh, still quite young, and has gone back to try to get her high school diploma. And so that's why I met her. And You know, I think I and we were all very charmed by her, and that's why why she ended up in the show. But it's also because I think that she gives a very good sort of sociological um, evaluation of the environment that she lives in
1: so here from the pipeline project baltimore chapter the section called the death of freddie gray very briefly anna devere smith doing india sledge
3: my boyfriend jake was literally walking he was walking to the store and the police jacked him up and threw him against the wall for no reason checked him for no reason and since that time his mom mom's like i've got to get away from here because you know, around this area, that's all it is around here. It's just drug dealers, drug dealers, drug dealers.
1: Uh, for your project on the school-to-prison pipeline, you talked to all kinds of people all, all over the place. You said you did some work in Northern California. You talked to a really interesting guy named Michael Tubbs in Stockton. Who is Michael Tubbs? How did you find him?
3: Well, Michael Tubbs is a star. He is well-known in, in California. He's the youngest councilman, I believe, that Stockton has ever had, and right now he's running for mayor, a uh, 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 extraordinary young man, graduated from Stanford and, you know, started campaigning then when he was still in school. And what interested me so much about Michael and other uh, friends of his that I met in Stockton is here's a bankrupt city you know, um, homicide-ridden city. And I met young people like Michael who had great educations who are coming back home to try to make a difference. And so I found it to be pretty irresistible. And like India, he too, in just talking about his city, gives us something that I think sociologists would be interested in.
1: So here's Anna Devere Smith as Michael Tubbs, a city councilman in Stockton, uh, talking about reading aloud in a classroom.
3: And I was reading about Dr. Martha Luther King Jr. And I got to the point he was assassinated. I tried to go through the page really quickly because I really didn't want to talk to six-year-olds about death. So I tried to turn the page really quickly, and one little boy raised his hand, Mr. Tubbs, my uncle got shot. Then another little boy said, Mr. Tubbs, my cousin got shot. Before I could turn the page, Every student in that classroom knew somebody had been shot as a victim of violent death.
1: And then we have the conclusion of the Michael Tubbs segment.
3: What life is this? When I can't see past 18, just wanna be alive at 25. And it's just so heartbreaking. Prison or death? There's really no other option opportunity for boys and young men of color and Stockton. Prison or death.
1: Anna Devere Smith, you recently described yourself as a daughter of the Teachers of Baltimore. Uh, One of the people you portray in the Pipeline Project is a teacher from Philadelphia named Stephanie Williams. Tell us about her.
3: Stephanie is a young teacher who I met by accident when I was going into a school in North Philadelphia. And uh, I don't expect anybody to recognize me in North Philadelphia. And she stopped and she stared at me and pointed at me. And usually that's because somebody has seen me on Nurse Jackie or on, um, on The West Wing. Uh, but actually she knew my play, one of my early plays, Fires in the Mirror. And um, and she's a she's what an E S teacher working with kids who have emotional problems. And, you know, in, in the story that she tells us she is why I'm careful about just calling this a school to prison pipeline because you get a sense here of what teachers go through. And I think we would my, my, my idea would be to make schools that are habitable for everybody, not just not just the kids, but the teachers and the counselors, the nurses, the janitors. We need to turn schools back into communities that are, are, are fulfilling for people and that, and that make people healthy. And you can hear, as you listen to Stephanie Williams, some of the kinds of stresses and pressures that there are on a young teacher who's doing everything she can to do her best as a young woman who graduates from Mount Holyoke, she could probably do other things, uh, but here she is, dedicated, and it, it's it's hard. Let's listen. I felt like I had a whole bunch of hungry, starving people, and, and I had nothing in my hands to give them, even though I tried to give them so much, but it was hard to be that strong day in and day out. It was just, it felt like, it was like running a jail without a gun. That's what it was like. It was like... Being in jail without a gun, no gun, no handcuffs, no bully clubs. I can't throw you in the closet. I can't do any of that. I got to just keep you in order just by being me.
1: I read in the Washington Post that you're experimenting with new forms for your stage performance to engage the audience directly and and inspire them to action. What what was it that you were doing in Baltimore? How do you think it worked?
3: Yes, and also at Berkeley Repertory Theater this summer, I had an opportunity to experiment with this for a full month. And my idea is to basically just stop the show in the middle, and what is normally called the second act, to give that over to the audience. So what we do is take an audience of approximately 500 people, divide them up into groups of 20, and send them all over other parts of the theater, backstage, on stage, uh, in, you know, rehearsal rooms and uh, dressing rooms in Baltimore. It was even a, a paint shop. One group met in, another group met on a stairway. And to get the community talking about what they can do after they've seen the first act and asking people to make commitments. And, you know, because in my mind, the audience has got, folks who can do much more than me. I'm on stage with a wonderful, I should mention, by the way, jazz musician, Marcus Shelby, is a bass player. Yeah. And we we can entertain, we can get an audience, we can move an audience to get you to laugh, get you to cry. But my work is, is just a call. It's a call to action. And there are people in the audience who know a lot more about incarceration than I do, a lot more about education. There's younger people who are you know, recently out of school or or in schools. I haven't been in, you know, high school or middle school in many, many years. And also, you know, there's probably somebody in the audience who could write a bigger check than everybody put together. Let's get in here and turn this group of people who are sort of strangers sitting in the dark and try to do what we can to bring them together as a group of active citizens. And so that's what I've been experimenting with. had a lot of time to work on it in Berkeley and then take it to Baltimore.
1: Wow. Well, one last thing about your stage work. Here on the radio, we do everything we can to eliminate the ums, the ers and the you-knows. I know you take the opposite approach on stage. You think, you think they matter. Why?
3: Well, because I think that we all learn language, uh, you know, and we learn it, uh, particularly if we learned it through not just talking but reading and writing, we learn to speak it in what we would consider to be perfectly. The fact is that for everybody, speaking is a form of jazz. You, you, you've you got the words, and then you make them into a composition. Every time you open your mouth, there's a kind of a musical quality to your speaking, and that music has an effect on people more than the words themselves. And so part of that music and part of the rhythm, of course, is the ums, the you knows, the... Well, in Baltimore, it's really kids who are who are less than 25 use an expression, uh, you feel me, that then becomes "you femi, which then becomes fe, um and <laughs> femi. And, you know, somebody who's just like eight years older uh, would say, you know, in that same space where you would have, uh, you feel me, femi, or fe says, uh, you know what I'm saying? And that changes from, you know what I'm saying, to, you know, no, you know what I'm saying, to... Saying so, all of these things have a rhythmic reality, and that's really what reaches your heart or makes you furious, is the tones, the vocal tones that a person has in the song that they sing. And great speakers have uh, an incredible aptitude for that. You know, um, anybody you can think of who is a very compelling speaker isn't just saying words; they're they're really singing to you.
1: Anna DeVere Smith on the School to Prison Pipeline. Her one-woman show called Notes from the Field is streaming online now at HBO.com and HBO Go. it's time to talk with Rachel Kushner. She's the author of the amazing novel, The Flamethrowers. It was a bestseller and a finalist for the National Book Award. We talked with her about it here. Her debut novel, Telex from Cuba, was reviewed on the cover of the New York Times Book Review, and her fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, and the Paris Review. Her new novel is The Mars Room. Rachel Kushner, welcome back. Thanks, John. There are 219,000 women in prison in the United States. The Mars Room is a story about one of them. It's 2003, and Romy Hall, 20 years old and white, is serving two life terms plus six years at Stanville Women's Prison in California's Central Valley. It's the largest women's prison in the world. She killed the creep who was stalking her. She left behind a seven-year-old son. Her mother is taking care of him now. Uh, Rachel, people who know what prison is like on the inside say your account is utterly convincing. A friend wrote me that he had found a story in The New Yorker by someone named Kushner who has a perfect ear for prison and the life around it. How did you do this? How come you know so much about women's prisons and women prisoners? Did you do research?
4: I I think it's a combination of factors. Um, In this case, specifically, the structural conditions of prison are a world that I did commit myself to understanding, not so much as a novelist, but just a person and citizen of California and someone who was interested in the way that the society is layered and structured. And I wanted to know why some people end up kind of inducted into the criminal justice system, and others are not touched by it really in any way, and in fact, it sort of remains invisible to them. So I embarked on a project of getting to know people who were serving life sentences in a prison called Central California Women's Facility. Um, my prison, Stanville, in the book is a you know is a fictional place, but it shares certain characteristics with the CCWF, which is based in Churchill. and I went there regularly as a volunteer with a wonderful human rights organization called Justice Now, and started getting to know people. Um, but I had also grown up with a couple of people who went to prison. It wasn't a completely foreign territory for me. And in addition, one last thing, I think that was a huge immersion for me, but of a very different kind than working with Justice Now. I went on a tour with criminology students, a bus tour up and down the state of California to, I believe, Twelve men's facilities, one women's facility, and a uh, reentry place, um, Delancey Street, famous place in San Francisco. But the men's facilities that we went to, we we were there under a kind of like unique guys, which was that the students were being greeted and introduced to the world of working for the Department of Corrections, because many of them would go on to be hired by the state. And I was there undercover, and we were spoken to as insiders. In other words, we were spoken to by corrections officers as if they were with their own kind and could, you know, no pun intended, let their guard down (laughs) and share openly their feelings about their jobs and about their charges. And we were allowed to wander around on yards and go into people's cells and talk to them. And that's quite unusual. And so I was able to see for myself what prisons look like. I can't claim to know what it feels like to be incarcerated. I mean, and I just wouldn't do that. But I was immersed and exposed.
1: I don't know much about prisoners convicted of violent crimes. I have the standard left liberal view most of them never had a chance. They never had a decent childhood. They never had parents who took care of them. We hear a lot about wrongful convictions of people in prison for serious crimes, people who are actually innocent. We hear about the cops lie, the DAs cover up for the cops, but your women are not innocent victims of police lies. And I thought a lot of the women in prison were there not because they did horrible things, but because they had boyfriends who did. They drove the getaway car for the bad boyfriend. In fact, this comes up in the in the in the first chapter. They carried the drugs for the bad boyfriend. They hid the bad boyfriend's gun. But that's not really true of the of the women in your book, especially Romy. Romy is not innocent.
4: No, she isn't, and. Um... You do hear a lot about wrongful convictions and um, cops and DAs lying. And, however, I'm interested in the truth. And I'm also interested in standing up for people who have not been given much of a voice in our society. And the fact of the matter is, from my perspective, those people don't have a voice, A, and B, most of the time, they have done the thing of which they were convicted. But that doesn't mean I can't have sympathy for those people because mm-hmm. I don't think I'm in a position to judge other people that have not had my own experiences or the certain like societal advantages that I've been given because I'm middle class. In California, as the statistics go from multiple sources, 90 percent of people filling the state prisons have been convicted of what the state considers in their language, serious violent felonies. So in order to advocate for the actual people who've been thrown away by our society, I believe that one, in this case me, needs to advocate for the so-called guilty, and not for the very rare and actually quite small percentage of people who liberals could reinterpret as relatively innocent.
1: We care so much about Romy and what's happening to her, and what happens to her is really terrible. The most terrible part comes when Romy is told that her mother's been killed in a car accident, and this means there's nobody to take care of her young son and... He apparently will be taken away and adopted by unknown people. And the most infuriating thing in the book is the response of the prison staff to Romy seeking help for her in finding her young son and finding out what's happening to him. They tell her, your situation is due 100% to the choices you made and the actions you took. Well, how about the lifetime of bad things that happened to her that she did not choose?
4: But even as I wrote that, I felt a certain sympathy for the woman who works as a correctional officer because I've been around those people a lot. And they themselves are working class people, usually from these rural communities in the Central Valley, The only education you need to be hired by the California Department of Corrections as a guard is a GED, you know, an equivalency exam. And you can get paid an almost middle class salary to work in that environment. But the cost of it for the person psychologically, I believe, is absolutely enormous. Those are really stressful jobs. They have a very high rate of depression and suicide. And I can see, or at least I believe I can see, a kind of brittle carapace that the guard takes on in order to justify what Mm -hmm. they have to assist in enforcing. And so they tell themselves that it's okay that these women have been separated from their children. Um, There's a scene in the book where the character Gordon Hauser asks a guard if it's hard to watch the women and children saying goodbye to each other for those who are lucky enough to get family visiting. And um, that was a question that I asked a guard in the women's facility, and she said, "You grow a thick skin and they are in that situation because they deserve it because this is these are choices they made." And I knew that she didn't really believe that underneath yeah. what she said. I mean, she's literally standing there on the sidewalk in Chowchilla while, children are screaming and crying and mm-hmm. hugging the legs of their mothers. I know it's brutal, but i um, you know, and thinking into this and writing about it, I'm not interested in isolating, you know, in locating and naming villains. I don't really believe that that's how the society works. If there were good and evil structuring things, we probably could have found solutions a long time ago. It's more complicated than that. And all the people in the book are people to me with complexity and nuance.
1: Well, of course, the challenge in writing this story is to have something other than misery and suffering and horrible crying children. Yeah. And thank God you succeeded at finding plenty of this. But please please explain how you did it.
4: Sure. I mean, I don't know exactly how I did that, but I do feel that I um the thing I'm most proud of about the book is the comedy and the vitality in it, which don't feel like... They take away from the horror. They don't dissipate any of the pressure of the world that I attempt to render. It's more like I felt all the way along, even before I started writing the book, I knew from my own experiences of knowing people that people are full of humor and vitality and the capacity to make light of a situation, to bring something darkly funny and poignant to it. And that if I wasn't doing that in my writing, that that it was going to be a failed project. Um, and people are funny in prison. I mean, they they have a kind of brilliance that's actually rather unique. And I th- I have a new theory about it, which is that they are in such close quarters with one another. And they've been stripped of all of these manners of identity formation, like what Irving Goffman would call your identity kit, and what they have as currency is their personalities, which is to say their ability to seduce and charm and intimidate and threaten and to perform. So I wanted to evoke that.
1: Tell us about Justice Now.
4: Well, Justice Now is an incredible organization with a quite unique foundational history, I would say, from what I know about it. Um there's a lawyer named Cynthia Chandler, who's based in Oakland, who was working with some uh, long termers lifers at Chochilla. And she got the idea to start an organization whose leaders would be primarily made up of w- women or people in the women's prisons serving long sentences. And she went to people in prison and she said, not, bring me people who are interested in human rights and documenting human rights abuses, which is the, the work of Justice Now. Instead, she said, bring me people in the prison who are shot callers, who have enormous social power in the prison. Yeah. And those are the founding board members of Justice Now are these really cool, very tough, very respected people who've been in prison for a long time and are looked up to by their peers. And they were taught human rights law, and they were taught how to teach it to other people, and how to document abuses. And they do this incredible work. And the president of Justice Now right now is a person named Michael Concepcion, who is a lifer in Chowchilla and a good friend of mine. And he is a trans person who leads this organization from inside the prison, which is – How can you not be on board with that? It gives people, I think, an incredible sense of purpose. And they've done some great work. They got legislation passed in California that makes it illegal to sterilize women without their consent, which is something that had been happening, believe it or not, in California prisons. So they do ongoing daily work, and they also have had some very
1: monumental successes. One last thing. Rachel Kushner, are you related to Jared Kushner?
4: I am not related to Jared Kushner, although I did ideate on what I thought would be the comedy of pretending that we are cousins and referring to that family as our trash Jersey kin. (laughs) And my husband calls him Cousin Jared and recently emailed me after Jared got his um, security clearance downgraded, Cousin Jared is in deep shit. (laughs)
1: The book is The Mars Room, a Novel. The author is Rachel Kushner. Rachel, thanks for this book, and thanks so much for coming in today.
4: Thanks for having me, John.
1: Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide, hosted by the sports editor of The Nation and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants, so even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday now at thenation.com slash edge of sports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhoevel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.